Hello, this is Sam of Historian Splaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Podbean, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And you can hear all of my patron-only materials, including the next Myth of the Month. So, since I've just been getting recently to discussing the early colonization of America, I want to post now another interview with another friend and fellow historian, Melissa Morris, who is a professor of early American history at the University of Wyoming, and whose research on the very early northern European colonies in South America, in the region between the Amazon River and the Orinoco has been published recently in books and journals and who is herself working on a book based on this research. Some of these colonies, even if they didn't last for very long, they actually predated Jamestown in 1607. So some English and Dutch colonies were being created by small groups of adventurers and colonizers in South America as early as the 1580s. So there are very important early phenomenon in the colonization of America, and they're really unknown and unstudied. So here is my interview with Melissa Morris. So these recent publications, like your essay in the book, Virginia 1619, that is going to go into your larger book project of your own? I mean, bits of it. Like that obviously was more about the whole like 1619 thing, which I'm not like particularly invested. Yeah, I'm not like super invested in that. But uh, basically I was there to like rain on the parade to be like, actually, who cares about Virginia? There's like element, like I talk a lot of, I have a chapter that is about these South American colonies in the book. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's part of that. Interesting. So, so one of the things that some people have pointed out about the 1619 project is that the history actually goes back a lot farther than that. Yeah. You, you can't just look at 1619 and Virginia as this beginning point that sort of fits into a very American national narrative, right? To think there must be this beginning moment where kind of the United States started. And a lot of your work is going back and looking at these colonies, some of which existed even before Virginia that were in South America, in this particular zone of South America. And they included English colonies, Dutch, French. So firstly, what is, what is this region? There's this word that comes up in the record and that you use Guiana. Is it pronounced Guiana? What does that mean? Yes, it's a great question. And at the time it had a few different names as well, but I usually call it Guiana just because that was a term that people used uh, at the time. And today you will sometimes hear people refer to this region as the Guianas because that's the you know, there's the, the nation of Guyana, the still French colony of French Guiana, and then Suriname, which was formerly a Dutch colony. And so sometimes people refer to those nations collectively in the modern day as the Guianas as well. The Guiana, when I say Guiana, I'm talking about even really a little bit bigger region that includes parts of Brazil and Venezuela as well. So if you can conjure up an image of South America in your mind, 
it's that kind of northeastern wedge. It has the imprints of five different colonizing powers. And that's one of the reasons I find it particularly interesting. Yeah, so there was kind of a scramble for Guiana for a while, it seems. And it extends all the way to, to the Amazon. So some of the colonies that you looked at are actually all the way down on the Amazon River, which kind of shocked me, like, how did that happen? But before we get into what these colonies were and what they did, what, if you're an early American historian, what drew you to look at them and research about them? And what do you think makes them important? A lot of my research is looking at the really early colonial endeavors of the English and the French and the Dutch, and also their interactions um, with indigenous peoples, with the Spanish and the Portuguese to a certain extent as well. And when I started looking at that, I realized that actually they had had, you know, all of those nations had had a number of colonies in South America. And my historical inclinations have always tended a little bit towards the kind of weird quirky things that are not as well explained rather than you know places like Boston or you know Jamestown places that have a lot of more attention to them and so I I just became really fascinated by these colonies a lot of which were again like you said really short-lived they're sometimes called failures. I like to complicate that notion just because, you know, so the, the, we think of them as failures because we think of like the United States and other nations perhaps as kind of the, the logical goal or consequence of these colonies. But of course, at the time, that's not what anybody was trying to do or establish. So yeah, so I just, I, I was interested in seeing what kind of connections they had to what we think of as the, you know, quote unquote, 13 colonies and, and to other places as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that we might think today, well, it's successful if it led to a new independent nation like the US or Brazil. But at the time, what did, what did people want to do? Was it just make some quick money? What was the point of colonizing in this early time, like early 1600s? Yeah, I, it was different. You know, there were diverse people involved in it and they had different aims. But yes, some of them just wanted to make some money, extract resources. And so for them, you know, if they sent a few men to live in a colony and they got a few trade goods out of it and afterwards the, the operation, you know, folded because people died or they just left, that wouldn't necessarily have been considered a failure, right? Like if they made something out of it. There were, there were, of course, people at the time, particularly those looking at the Spanish empire and seeing what they had achieved, an achievement in the minds of colonizers, at least. There were people who did want to establish more permanent outposts to colonize more permanently, but that wasn't necessarily everyone's goal. And particularly not for a lot of these people who were involved in these colonies that I, that I write about. Yeah. So how did you find out about these colonies? Where are the records? You know, is there is there like a stash of records in London? Like, how do you piece it together? There are some records, partly because they weren't, you know, one con one consequence of their short fleeting nature is that there isn't the kind of attention or the sort of saving of records or even the kind of later recollections of previous decades that you get from other colonies, you know, like William Bradford's book was written long after the fact, right? So people didn't do that for these colonies because they weren't around often decades later. 
but there still are lots of records, not as much as one would like, but there are still some things. So some of the sources I use, one, one body of sources are, are things that were printed at the time about these colonies. So sometimes someone who was involved in one of these colonies might write a, a book about it. Partly because travel narratives were were quite popular in this period. And so if you have some, you know, compelling, crazy story about you, uh, you know, wound up shipwrecked on a Caribbean island and you traveled onto the mainland, you know, so you get these kinds of these narratives about kind of adventures that these that these would be colonizers had. So that's one group. And sometimes those were also compiled in other works. So I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with, but like uh, the Hacklet, uh, Richard Hacklet was a was a compiler of travel narratives, and so some of the narratives are are in those books. So that's one source that I use these works that were printed at the time. And then there are also a lot of manuscript sources for some of these colonies, more for some than for others. And this is an area where you sometimes have to read the sources against one another or alongside one another to get the full picture. So what I mean by that is there will be accounts of these Northern European interlopers in the Spanish records. So I I sometimes use records from the Spanish colonies that were adjacent to these um, South American colonies. So there was a Spanish colony called Trinidad y Guiana, and then as well as some of the, the other islands and mainland areas kind of adjacent to this region. And so those people in those colonies would sometimes complain about English pirates, Dutch, Dutch French pirates that are coming, and they would sometimes attack them. Now, according to the, the English, French, and Dutch, they also sometimes traded with these people. But of course, uh, in these official reports to the Spanish Empire, they're going to you know, put forth a particular story. So that's another another source of manuscripts. And there are sometimes manuscripts that 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 exist in the, the English and French and Dutch archives as well. And so those are places that I've looked at archival material, all of those countries. Yeah. And two things that struck me about how you were piecing together the story is one is that this adventure book by Walter Raleigh is like one of your big sources that he he was very involved in this and he was going off on you know doomed adventures looking for El Dorado so a lot of information came from that and then another one is that one of these small colonies it seems we only know it existed because some Portuguese official wrote a complaint about it saying oh no these English and Dutch are showing up and setting up a camp and that seems to be the only surviving like record that this colony existed, which kind of shows you how they, they kind of existed on the edge, right? I was wondering, how did these Europeans survive in a place like Guiana? I may be biased because I grew up in North America. And to me, it's like, oh, the Amazon is this really hostile environment. Like, oh, the, the animals, the insects, the storms, the diseases, right? And in, in the Caribbean, colonists died at a very high rate from tropical diseases. So how did that go in these colonies in South America and how did they survive? Yeah, it's a great question because if you think about colonizers' experience in other places, uh, particularly places with a somewhat similar climate, it didn't always go very well. And it was also true here, right? So there are accounts of people dying from not easily identifiable to us diseases. <laughs> and there is, you know, there's an account of this colonizer, Robert Harcourt, and he, they start to settle in this place where a previous English colony had been. And this indigenous person comes and says, 
don't stay here. You will die. You'll get sick and die in this specific location. And so I think that's, that really is the key alliance and aid from indigenous peoples, which of course was, you know, key to success of colonizers in other places as well, right? And places where they did make it. So in the, in this area, one of the things I'm really interested in is why, why did that happen? It seemed to me, you know, from the sources I was reading that there was some sort of alliance that seemed to work at least for a period of time between especially English and Dutch. And we know this first from their own sources, right? So the English and Dutch will say, oh, we made an alliance with this group and fought with them against their enemies and things like that. Well, okay, perhaps we might not want to take them at face value, right? But the Spanish and Portuguese also complain about this, right? So the Spanish complain about a colony of Dutch that have, they say they're so intermarried with native peoples that you can't even tell them apart. I'm not sure that that is necessarily true either, but like they also seem to agree that they're, that they are, there is some kind of alliance and the port, there's the Portuguese complaint that you referenced earlier that they say they, they more readily, they meaning the Dutch and English in this case, more readily give them what they want. I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like there's some sort of like everybody is getting along together and everyone loves one another. But I think there were some things specific to this region that made such alliances possible, at least in the short term within certain parameters. So again, thinking about this space, Guiana as space where the Spanish and the Portuguese are on the fringes of it, and particularly the the Spanish who have into the early 17th century kind of a growing presence in what will become, you know, what is present day Venezuela, Colombia, even, even more so. And so there were indigenous people that were displaced by the Spanish presence and were adversely affected by the Spanish being there even if they themselves did not live in places that were directly colonized by the Spanish. Mm -hmm. So you have these groups that perceive the Spanish as an enemy, right? And they know the Spanish are there in really big numbers, that they've been there for a while at this point. So when you have a boat of relatively few English or Dutch or French who are often at great pains to make it clear that they are enemies of the Spanish as well, if they are willing, as they sometimes were, to provide your group with some kind of martial alliance, perhaps guns or or other kinds of metal tools or implements that you could potentially use to ward off any potential intruders, then that's an alliance that kind of makes sense, right? Um, I think, you know, these people would have probably preferred if none of these Europeans had ever showed up, right? But, But since the Spanish had been kind of, you know, by the early 17th century, a long-standing feature of, of the region, these smaller groups of Europeans who present themselves as enemies of the Spanish seem kind of like they could prevent further Spanish incursion. So that's kind of the, one of the reasons that these people are able to last to the extent that they do, that they have, they're able to build alliances with indigenous people who aid them, give them food, tell them where to live or not to live, and yeah. basically help them survive in this climate, which is good in some ways. The climate, you know, you brought, you mentioned the climate, obviously it had some, you know, potentially had diseases that, that um, Northern Europeans were susceptible to and that could also be like you know settling someplace where the water's bad or things like that but it also has two growing seasons I mean in some ways it's more um, hospitable to life than 
some of the other places these guys wind up, right? Like New England or, you know, it's, it's better in a lot of ways for living, even Virginia, right? Is, you know, it doesn't have two growing seasons. And it's very interesting because I know that the English and the Dutch liked to portray themselves as kind of the nicer colonizers, you know, and they, they had this whole black legend about the Spanish are so repressive and we're much nicer. And that's why we'll make friends with the indigenous people. And it sounds like this is a particular place where that kind of happened to work out just because of the, the geography, the moment in time that they were able to make that relationship and present themselves as kind of a better alternative than the Spanish or the Portuguese. But obviously we'll, we'll talk about how in other places that didn't work out, it did right. not work out that way at all. But it was amazing to me how so much of the description of these colonies was so glowing about how prosperous they were and how good this environment was. And it, it made me wonder how credible were those kinds of reports? Are they boosterism? You know, there's a lot of boosterism, even when you're looking at like Virginia and Plymouth, of, oh, this is such an abundant land and you must come join us here. But it seems like you're saying, well, there were actually advantages to living in this region. It wasn't all exaggeration or embellishment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, you're totally right. If you read this colonial promotional literature, you would just think these were the greatest places to live on earth and everything was always wonderful. And, you know, there weren't potential like warfare with indigenous people who didn't want them, no slavery. I mean, you would just read them and think, wow, this is great. So with Guiana, there's this one example I like where the, the author says, when one leaf falls, it's replaced by another. Like, it's just that fruitful. And yes, absolutely. These, these were hyperbolic, right? The descriptions were very hyperbolic. Similarly, you know, they say, oh, the indigenous people love us and they are friends with us. And yes, they had alliances, but it's not as if they were, they, there also was sometimes strife between indigenous peoples. And there's one colony that was said by a later observer to have ended because they got themselves too involved in indigenous warfare. But the, the other thing about the environment that both intrigues these European outsiders, but also rep you know, repels them is that it's somewhat, in, the interior is somewhat inaccessible, right? There are mountains and it's very riverine. There are rivers everywhere between the, you know, the Amazon and the Orinoco. If you think about those two really big rivers in between, there's many other rivers. Well, that's great in a way, right? Because there's transportation and things like that. But it's the, the people who are coming to this place, they think, you know, one of the draws of it, you mentioned Walter Raleigh earlier, is that they imagine that El Dorado might also be in the interior. So in addition to the other things that they're doing there, there's also this kind of persistent rumor of El Dorado, but they Which can't get city, into the interior. A golden city, yeah. right? That supposedly has right. a ruler covered in gold. Yes. The gold is the real, the thing that really intrigues them. So, but yes, yeah, it has a has a, a gilded prince who, you know, rides in a canoe. So they're looking for this. The Spanish send out tons of expeditions to find it. Walter Raleigh's looking for it. The kind of mania for it dies down, but people still will, you know, so people are still like, maybe, you know, maybe there's something to it. But the region isn't even fully explored by, you know, non-Indigenous people fully until the 20th century, right? So they, they don't know the source of some of the rivers until like the 1950s. So it's a region that is very fruitful in a lot of ways but also presents a lot of challenges for these outsiders who are trying to figure out what's there and 
what other kinds of treasures, be they literal gold or just kinds of useful plants and crops you can grow. It comes through pretty clearly how even before these colonies were set up back in the 1500s, there's already this long history of little independent merchants, kind of raiders, pirates, showing up here and there, sort of stealing, trading, and often especially trading with the local indigenous people. It makes you think if you sort of turn the picture around and think of it from the Spanish or Portuguese point of view, they believed they were the rightful claimants of all this territory. So from their point of view, all of this was piracy, smuggling, and then these colonies in a way are just a further extension of that. They're just kind of piratical interloper enterprises. So, and in a way you could kind of see all Northern European colonization in the Americas, the Caribbean, all of it is kind of this, it's all sort of a piratical enterprise, right? It's just kind of opportunistic invaders, intruders coming in, trying to trade, trying to colonize, exploit. So do you think these colonies sort of show that, that trajectory and that transition from just sort of occasional raiding into colonizing? Yeah, I mean, so they're all, even the Spanish and Portuguese, right, they're all kind of piratical in the sense that they're, you know, invading interlopers. But yeah, certainly the Spanish believe that this area that, and this goes for, as you know, Virginia as well, and and, and all over the Americas, they think that the northern, these other groups that do eventually permanently colonize, I look again, especially at the English, French, and Dutch, but they, yeah, they think that they're outsiders. And a lot of this colonization is an outgrowth of this illicit trade and piracy that these groups participate in prior to settling. One thing that I am interested in too is thinking about how the official Spanish view of things does does often diverge from what's happening on the ground. So from the Spanish colonist perspective, a lot of these colonists are with respect to the Spanish empire on the edge of empire. So they live in places where the Spanish are infrequently bringing supply ships. I have this document where um, the Spanish official is saying, he was writing to the, to the officials and says like, you know, back in, in Spain and says, this is our last piece of paper. So if you could please send us some more supplies, right? Like we are really desperate here. And so when these Northern Europeans come, And they have things like cloth or wine or, you know, just kind of basic, basic things. And, you know, well, whether you not you consider wine basic or not is uh, up to your interpretation. But, you know, things that they need to live. There's this book by Jesse Cromwell about colonial Venezuela. And he talks about like a moral economy of smuggling where these people know that they're not supposed to be doing this but they don't really see it, see it as wrong because there's really no other way they can survive in these places. Mm. And so, you know, for these Spaniards on the ground, you know, they'll say it's pirate. They'll say they might report that these people are pirates, uh, but what they're trying to do is really get more reinforcement from the crown for the places that they live in better, better living conditions, better communication with the metropole, better supplies and things like that. So I kind of want to complicate this idea that like, they're all just pirates because a lot of them, you know, just consider that they're participating in free trade, right? Right. And they're sort of filling an economic niche that Spain or Portugal is not. So they have, they have like a role there. And yeah, absolutely. From there. 
Now, so there's, so there's this background of serving as intermediaries in this kind of trade world around the Caribbean, but what apparently what really makes these colonies viable and successful once they're established is tobacco, right? That's the big thing, which sounds familiar, right? We're supposed to think, oh, it's Virginia. They kind of discovered tobacco and it all took off from there. But these were kind of already tobacco cash crop colonies even before Virginia, right? So tobacco is something that's traded. Well, it's something that's produced, grown, consumed throughout most of the Americas from north to south. There are a few places where it isn't grown like, well, I live in Wyoming and you can't really grow much here. So there are a few places kind of in the interior of North America where tobacco or some, where some species of tobacco isn't grown, but more or less it's grown and consumed throughout the Americas before Europeans show up. So it's a trade good that the Spanish empire is not initially interested in firstly, because there's no market for it because it's completely new, right? To Europeans and And Europeans before this point don't really smoke anything. I mean, I imagine there were some sailors who saw people smoking things in other places around the world, but there aren't really, smoking is not a a, a thing that's widely known in Europe before this point. So over time, people living in the Americas, so, you know, priests seem to be kind of early adopters Mm -hmm. of it, enslaved Africans who are often working alongside indigenous people, and also just everyday colonists, sailors, start uh, experimenting with tobacco, which is, it's not exclusively smoked, but smoking comes to be one of the preferred ways along with snuff, which is a little more popular in this period than it becomes later to consume it. Yeah, and it's interesting. It seems like the colonies and their tobacco production And the fashion for tobacco back in Europe sort of grow together and kind of feed into one another. And I love this quote from Raleigh's book about exploring Guiana, which I think was published in 1596. So it's already really early. And he says, for those that love tobacco, Guiana is a place where one could, quote, smoke themselves till they become bacon. (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually, that quote was actually removed from the, that was like in a, in a draft and a manuscript copy of Raleigh's discovery. So someone actually thought it better to take that out. I think my personal opinion is that it's because you, you want to keep up the illusion that there's gold there, right? Because that's what the Spanish, so if you focus on like other things at this point, that is sort of detracting away from what ought to be the real goal, because, you know, there's a question if the monarch, whether, you know, it be Elizabeth or later on James the first is going to expend the political capital of making Spain really mad in order so Raleigh can smoke, right? So so then other people like him. But yeah, the, the idea is that, you know, they go, they go to these places and the kind of tobacco, the species of tobacco that becomes really popular in Europe and is in fact the species that supplants the species that's native to Virginia. So the, the kind of tobacco that's grown in Virginia today is actually not native to Virginia. It's native to South America. That's what they're growing in these places and they smoke it. And so that starts to appeal as this becomes a more popular, widely traded commodity. It's very fraught what people think about tobacco and do with tobacco at this point. 
But yeah, you mentioned the king, James the first, first of England. And right. So- I yeah, I know. I know some Scottish history fans are gonna give very adamant that he's James also the, the first king of Scotland. Sixth. Yeah, sixth of Scotland. But he he's very interesting because he kind of embodies a lot of the attitudes of that of that era and he wrote a lot. So he wrote about, I know he wrote a book about witchcraft, which was kind of influential. And he also apparently wrote this book called A Counterblast to Tobacco. So in 1604, just after he becomes King of England. And I love this quotation too, where he, he's adamantly against the trend and the fashion towards smoking tobacco. And he says, quote, shall we abase ourselves so far as to imitate these beastly Indians, slaves to the Spaniards, refuse to the world, and as yet aliens from the holy covenant of God. Why do we not as well imitate them in walking naked as they do, in preferring glasses, feathers, and such toys to gold and precious stones as they do? Yea, why do we not deny God and adore the devil as they do? (laughs) So he's really going full bore here, how horrendous it is. And it's interesting that he's his argument seems to be don't smoke tobacco because these like primitive idolatrous Indians do that and we don't want to imitate them. And did you find that that was like a common issue that people resisted things like tobacco because they saw it as sort of going native? Yeah, there's a lot going on in that quote and even more <laughs> yeah. in the the larger work where he also says he says tobacco is unhealthy it's bad for your nose and lungs, like some things about tobacco that we recognize as being totally true. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, he, so he has, he takes exception to this fad on many grounds, but one of them, as you point out, is the fact that tobacco is indigenous to the Americas. And furthermore, it was a part of a lot of indigenous religious ceremonies, diplomatic ceremonies, it wasn't something we think of tobacco as something as, you know, kind of a, a recreational drug in a way or something that you just do less so nowadays. But, you know, that people would just commonly be doing that obviously has cultural meanings, but like we don't think of it in that same way. Right. Like we just think of it as being sort of, you know, you smoke because it looks cool or you're addicted to it or whatever. But for indigenous societies, tobacco might be used in that way, but it also was often a part of ceremonies that were very, that had a lot of, you know, deep cultural meaning. And so that was one of the big barriers to its adoption by Europeans. They would see something like a shaman figure smoke so much tobacco, he passed out. And they would think like this is, you know, maybe as James I points out, something devilish ritual or something like that. And then it was also consumed in ways to us that seemed strange, right? So there were like tobacco enemas, chewing tobacco leaves or, or uses that decidedly were not adopted by the Europeans, right? So I think that, that that was a reason for it taking some time to be adopted by Europeans widely, for sure. Yeah, so it has, it has these religious overtones that it could be used ceremonially, it could have spiritual significance. And then also, like you said, there's so much packed into this little passage, like he says, he doesn't use what we might think of today as racism, like biological racism, like 
they're darker skinned and so that means they're like more primitive but he he points to their practices their customs as being inferior or even evil or demonic and one sort of perversity he points out is they prefer glasses feathers and such toys over gold and precious stones i think this is very interesting because it plays into kind of myths and stories that people still tell that the colonists bought Manhattan for like a few glass beads, you know, and this idea that the, the Indians were stupid or messed up because they, they didn't correctly value like trinkets, they overvalued trinkets over real valuable things like gold. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it fits in with what becomes over time an important English justification for colonization. We might imagine today that Europeans just sort of came to the Americas and just took the land because they thought Native peoples were inferior. But there were people at the time who questioned, you know, by what right do we take land from these people? And one of the answers that Europeans and again, English and, and Dutch especially came up with was based on their use of the land. So there are the argument went that these native peoples weren't properly using the land by which they meant exploiting gold mines or you know maybe even engaging in agriculture in a particular way and so that sort of you know they don't value mines and precious stones also plays into that that idea that 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 was developing at the time that these people only had a, a natural right to the land, you know, they're subsisting on it and that's all they need the land for, you know, if you push them, if you push them aside and, and give them enough land to grow a few crops on, then you're doing right by them. You're, you're still being just to them because they don't really know how to, you know, they don't really know what to do with the land. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it plays into that too. Yeah, sounds very familiar. And and I think it goes to this ongoing pattern, this ongoing theme about gold. And I think people are widely aware that the desire to find gold was a major driver and kind of guiding force in how people colonized all the, all the different Europeans, how, what they were looking for, where they went. And it's interesting, sometimes that too can be portrayed as kind of this a madness, a mania, insanity, that they were just so fixated on gold when, when they should have been, you know, planting crops and doing these more kind of productive things. But I know that some writers like Matthew Restall have pointed out, well, no, it wasn't so irrational that they were focused on gold because gold was, at least at one point in time, gold was the only material of great enough value to be worth obtaining and shipping all the way back across the Atlantic back to Europe. And so they basically were just not wasting their time by getting distracted by anything other than gold. So maybe these, these sort of weird questions of what is the proper activity? What is the proper way of trying to exploit territory in the Americas, that ambiguity is still going on and is still kind of used in these myths to judge like who was more advanced, who was more primitive, who was rational or irrational. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I am interested in plants and, you know, botanical history and things like this. So one of the things I like to emphasize is that at the outside of this way back when with Columbus, you know, they're trying to find plant and plant products, right? They're looking for spices and they, they want a route to Asia so they can they can get essentially plant byproducts, right? So then the Spanish wind up finding the Americas and with it, you know, all these gold and silver mines. 
And so then that, yeah, as you say, becomes a major draw for the continued colonization of the Americas and exploitation of its people, of its resources, because yeah, as Matthew Restaw and others have pointed out, that is justifiable in the sense that, you know, it's something that seems to them worth it to take the effort to extract it and ship it across the Atlantic. In the case of James I, there are people and a lot of these colonies that I'm looking at really do seem to start to see that crops, that growing things is actually the way forward. Either harvesting things that are already growing like trees like mahogany or letterwood, which become popular goods, or establishing large-scale agriculture. One of the reasons I think these colonies in the in the Guianas are so fascinating is because I do think there's some people that are kind of working that out before it's really made its way north. But from the perspective of James I, he is in a position where during his reign, he has been trying to pursue peace or at least not war with Spain, right? <laughs> so, you know, at one point he's hoping to make, you know, a Spanish match for, you know, one of his kids. He is not willing to risk going to war with Spain, right? So basically, if a colony is going to be established, it has to be worth it, right? Because you're, you're potentially going to provoke the wrath of the king of Spain, right? And so if someone is like, oh, we have some weird leaf we can dry out and smoke in a pipe, is that a good rationale for colonizing the Americas? No. Hey, we found a massive gold mine. We can get really rich off of it. Okay, that might be worth it, right? Because <laughs> you can yeah. use, you know, you can use gold to fight a war potentially. You can't, tobacco maybe, you know, with <laughs> the calculus there is a little trickier. And so... I think you're right. And I think it also plays into these kinds of ideas are kind of modern ideas about searching for gold. You know, it's kind of modern ideas about like, oh, you're just doing something for the money. And of course, you know, it, it obviously wrapped up with our, you know, the belief of many people now that, you know, what these empires were doing was ultimately bad, right? You know, that, that colonizing the Americas and subjecting, you know, millions of Africans to slavery and indigenous people to slavery and both groups to death that, you know, that 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 was like not a good thing, right? So we, it's easy for us to be like, well, they were just in it for the gold and they were just greedy. And like, I don't mean to imply that they were doing something good, but I think like it was more complicated and it, it requires an understanding of what gold meant in, in the early modern period that mm -hmm. is somewhat different from what it means today. So, you know, it's perfectly fair and reasonable to say this was wrong. They shouldn't have been going into other people's country, but it's easy to fall into sort of making a caricature right? That in oversimplifying yeah, exactly. what they were doing. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned some of what people were learning from this experience in Guiana and Amazonia made its way north. And, and your essays deal with kind of this odd connection between the Guiana colonies and Virginia. How did all of this experience, success and failure, in Guyana, do you think it shaped what people tried to do then in Virginia and what their expectations were and their strategies? I do. And I'm really, I am interested in those connections. And I think if you look at the Guianas in Virginia in particular, there are a lot. So we've talked about Walter Raleigh. He was deeply interested in both places. Although I like to point out that he only went to the Guianas. He never went to Virginia. So he's I like to think of him as a little bit more invested in the South American spaces. 
than in Virginia. But the, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but the, the plant, the species of tobacco that comes to be cultivated in Virginia comes from South America. And we don't know precisely how it winds up in Virginia. And maybe it's introduced several times. John Rolfe, who's sort of considered the, the one who is innovative in planting tobacco in Virginia, he winds up in Virginia after being shipwrecked on Bermuda where the Spanish had previously been, you know, it was kind of a, an island that ships going across the Atlantic would sometimes stop over on. And so I think it's highly possible that there were this, that this other strain of tobacco was introduced there previously. But there are also, uh, you know, there are people who are involved besides Raleigh, but like other people who are involved in these ventures that either as investors or as colonizers or traders that then moved on to Virginia <clears throat> afterwards. One figure who's kind of, I think, perhaps more famous as the, he's also the ambassador to the Mughal Empire, Thomas Rowe. He's involved in these Guiana adventures. He, he goes there, trades tobacco, and then later he becomes an investor in the Virginia company. So there are a lot of connections in terms of people. I think also this kind of willingness to see plantation agriculture ultimately as, as something that could make a successful colony and not just finding a gold or silver mine, that that is an important legacy of these colonies. And I think also, you know, they, they, they do persist, like the period I write about the colonies fail. But they do persist in these trying to colonize this region. And there's been some more when I started this project, there really wasn't a whole lot on the Guianas. But recently, there's been a few books that have come out on the Guianas more in the 18th century than in the 17th, although there are also people, of course, working on the 17th century, too. But I think, you know, in the 18th century, you have what we think of as when we think of, a, of as a colony, you know, like hundreds of settlers lots of enslaved Africans, plantation agriculture. So that does happen in a later period. And I think that that just speaks to the continued allure of this region, that they still kind of think of it. A hundred years later, there's this person writing about the Guianas and he's like, Walter Raleigh started a good thing there. You know, he's like the, the mm. native people still love us because they love Walter Raleigh. <laughs> and there's like some evidence that actually people showing up, there were native peoples that like had heard of Raleigh, but I don't know that that necessarily translated to like, we all, you know, we would love to invite you over because of his, there's this sort of lingering what if I think about this region over the decades when these colonies don't survive, there's still this kind of belief. Seems like things kind of worked out okay there. We got along with Native peoples. Yeah. And you point out that if you put, if you pick a moment like 1619 and look at Virginia on the one hand and the colonies in Guyana on the other, it may have seemed like the Guiana colonies were the really promising ones and that that's kind of where the future of colonization really was more than Virginia. Can you imagine, talk about counterfactuals, <laughs> can you imagine a plausible history where, where in fact South America became the main kind of core area of English and and Dutch colonization more so than North America and the Caribbean, like Jamaica? 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it, it's kind of fun to do the, the counterfactual, but I think, you know, you can imagine a plausible enough, we shall say, version of that event. You know, there's this bid in William Bradford, who is one of the Massachusetts Bay settlers, and he he's talking about before they set out for, you know, ultimately New England, they don't necessarily intend to go there either. But, you know, he he's, has this passage where he says, some and none of the meanest, by which he means the people who were more well-to-do or more influential, were for Guyana. And so there were people on that trip who actually argued that they should go to Guyana instead, and that this could be the place where they could settle. And you could just imagine, like, what would happen? What if the, you know, quote unquote, pilgrims had gone to Guyana instead of, you know, instead of to what becomes Massachusetts? Like, that's quite intriguing to think about. And, you know, a lot of people who who went to New England, they didn't find they didn't find it that compelling as a place to live or establish (laughs) colonies. You know, the soil isn't great. It gets pretty cold. Like it doesn't, you know, all apologies to anyone listening who's lived in, <laughs> who's from New England. I, you know, I've lived there and it's, it's very nice, but you know, it's not, it wouldn't necessarily be at the top of your list. If what you're thinking is, you know, extracting resources and, and planting things in particular that, especially things that you can't grow in England, right? Like, so part of the, the calculus there, there's this idea that you know, maybe it's better to have colonies. If you're thinking about agriculture, it's better to have colonies in places that are unlike your home climate, because you can already grow whatever you can grow in New England. You can probably grow it in England, right? And so so some people would say like Guyana is better because you can grow things that don't grow in England. Or, you know, there's a Dutch writer who says there are all these things that, you know, he's like the Spanish can't even make good use of these this area because Spain already has hot places and they can grow olives in Spain, but we can't grow olives in the Netherlands. We need an, you know, we need to find a place we can grow olives or we need to find a place where we can grow grapes to make wine out of. And so there is, if you're looking at it and say 1600 or even a little bit earlier or later, it has a lot of advantages that Northern climes don't necessarily have. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. You know, that if, if New England is like England, then it's redundant, right? And it did, that's yeah. kind of what ended up happening was New England became redundant to England and hence they kind of came into conflict. That's really interesting. And it really strikes me, the passages where you describe in your essay on uh, Spanish and indigenous influences upon Virginian tobacco cultivation, you sort of go through the process of how people tried to set up Virginia as a viable productive colony. And they stopped over, I believe in Florida, is that right? And they prepared, they gathered up banana trees and sugarcane, all these tropical crops and tried to apparently tried to cultivate them in Virginia. And we're sort of in denial that Virginia was actually a much colder temperate climate. They sort of wanted to imagine it would be like another Guiana, that it would be the same sort of tropical environment. And I think, you know, I think one with uh, thinking about, you know, climate and the way early modern people their understanding of climate was kind of more based on like latitude, more or less, (laughs) you know, they didn't understand like continental climates or, you know, that coasts have sometimes slightly different climates. And so, you know, that if you you go to Virginia in summer, you might be forgiven for thinking, hey, like this is a tropical climate, it must be warm all year round. And 
you know, Virginia doesn't get especially cold, but it's not a tropical climate. And so there was really a deep misunderstanding about, about climate generally in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, I don't know if you've read Sam White's book, I forget the title of it, but he talks a lot about that and this kind of a misunderstanding of climate in the Americas as a part of leading to lots of early disasters. And so, yeah, so they bring these plants, these plants, yeah, plants that you just absolutely cannot really grow in, in Virginia. And they, I think when they first try and grow them, they say, oh, it was the wrong time of year to plant them and how they would know when you even plant a banana tree. I don't know. But so they, they do, they have these expectations about what will grow in, in Virginia, especially that are just unmet. And a lot of it also has to do with climate, but it has to do with agricultural expertise too. Like some of these things they don't really know very much about these plants. So tobacco, they have indigenous people who do grow tobacco, even though it is a different species, but they grow tobacco. They at least know a bit about it, but they have other, you know, things that they try and introduce. They try and introduce mulberry trees so they can, which are what silkworms eat. Yeah. And they try and do this for like so long or they want to introduce grape vines to grow wine. And you can't, I mean, you can grow grapes in Virginia and make, you can make wine, you know, I'm from Ohio. You can make wine from grapes in Ohio, but it's not like particularly great wine. It's not like the most, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> I met a guy who has a vineyard in Northern Colorado. It's not that, you know, I don't think it's like the top quality stuff that they were hoping it would be, but like, but, you know, and so they, they keep trying to, to do these things that the climate is just not suitable for, but also they, they bring in experts, they bring in like French grape growers and they try and bring in experts and they think, oh, this will solve the problem. And, yeah. and really it's just that the climate's just not really suitable for these endeavors. Yeah. Well, when it comes to these crops, like with wine, you can grow wine grapes in different environments, but you have to really learn the expertise. And you explain the same is true with tobacco. And there are sort of these reasons why the Virginia colonists, it seems, did learn about tobacco cultivation and tobacco use, like the fact that it's used in diplomacy in Native American nations. And the English colonists were a foreign nation coming in to this territory. So they probably engaged in ceremonies with the local, the Powhatan people of the Powhatan Confederacy that involved tobacco. And also tobacco, you said tobacco was traditionally cultivated by men, whereas most agriculture was done by women in the Chesapeake world. How does that gender kind of division of labor then make it possible for tobacco to jump over into English civilization? I think if you look at it with this gender lens, there are some things about tobacco cultivation that would have made it a little more familiar to English settlers in Virginia. So the first is that, yeah, it was probably cultivated by men, whereas other things were cultivated by women. Another thing is that it was probably because it was cultivated by different people, right? On its own separate plot for people familiar with the way that some crops were grown in the Americas by indigenous people, they would sometimes practice intertillage. So growing different crops together. And this is on the whole, a good thing, but to English observers, it looked messy, you know, like they're kind of throwing all these things together. Why are the beans and the corn and the squash together? Like put them in separate plots. 
So tobacco would have kind of looked a little more legible to them in that sense. And I, and yes, the other thing is these diplomatic ceremonies in Virginia, but also elsewhere. If you think about this, the notion of the, the peace pipe, you know, that was a real thing, right? That that tobacco was often smoked when diverse groups would come together. And so, yes, the English would have been treated as a foreign nation. Well, as of course, they were a foreign nation. And so, it, you know, they would have probably smoked tobacco with indigenous people. And so somewhat regularly, maybe even all of those things would have made them somewhat more aware of tobacco. Tobacco, by the time, by the, time the English are colonizing Virginia, Tobacco is already something that they would know about and they probably, you know, there were, I'm sure there were people in Virginia who already were smokers to some extent, but this would have all kind of made tobacco use and tobacco cultivation more noticeable to them in ways that maybe other types of, of crops and other kinds of agriculture wouldn't have been. Yeah. And you also, you make the point that the relations between English colonists and the indigenous people in the Powhatan Confederacy in the Chesapeake were totally different from in Guyana, that this was a much more fraught and really violent interaction. So what what was so different about the Chesapeake that led to the English failing to create cooperative relations with the indigenous people like they had done to some degree in Guyana? I think one thing is that in the Guianas, you have these really, you have a diverse constellation of indigenous peoples. They have somewhat different languages. They had different economic specializations. So in the Guianas, they're was a group that specialized in making poison. And there's a group that said, so they all do slightly different things and they had to cooperate with one another, but they were essentially autonomous. There wasn't, you know, one leader that had taken this array of indigenous peoples and, you know, proclaimed himself the ruler. And so in Virginia, you, you do have that. And, and I think another thing that's important in Virginia is that it's relatively recent. So the, the, Pow- the Powhatans had formed a confederation over the last decades of the 16th century. And so their leader, who's often referred to as Powhatan also, had, had basically gotten you know, a constellation of other groups under his control. And so I think that when they encounter the English, they think, right, okay, we can handle these guys too, the same way that we've done with other people. And I think there, there isn't the same sort of, they don't have the same kind of pressures that these groups in the Guianas have from the Spanish. The Spanish had been to this region before. So the Spanish were not unknown to the Powhatans. So the English were not like the first Europeans they had ever seen. But the Spanish attempt to establish a mission there and they, they kill them and expel them basically. And so I think they have a different sense of how to treat outsiders, but they also have a, a different sense of how to treat the English, even if the English do intend to settle, if that makes sense. So they, I think there's a, a certain sense to which the leader Powhatan imagines that, okay, if these people are going to stay here, then I will also bring them into my into my confederacy, if that makes sense. Yeah, so they have much more developed expectations of the kind of cooperation that they want from these European colonizers. And when right. 
And when that doesn't happen, it leads to to conflict much more than in than it did in South America. And yet, ironically, it's Virginia that ends up lasting, although it, it may have seemed at moments like it wasn't going to. It did end yeah. up lasting. I mean, I think the other thing, too, that makes Virginia different, both from the perspective of indigenous people and from this question of like, how does it wind up lasting, is that they just keep sending people to Virginia, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them die. But the Virginia company is just able, at least for a a period of time, to, to marshal the resources to just like send people, convince people to go to Virginia. And so they send, you know, I forget the exact numbers, but like a couple thousand people there and the majority of them die. But the end result is that you still have like a few hundred people there at the, at the end of two decades, right? And so I think that that, that sort of changes, I mean, that's going to inevitably change the relationship they have with these indigenous people. 12 people, 20 people is very different than just a continued ceaseless like number of people that just keep coming every year and again, many of them die, but like they still show up. Right. And that, and that is also, I think, ultimately what leads to Virginia lasting almost at the time where, you know, the English crown is like this Virginia thing seems like a bad idea. Maybe we should step in enough people have been sent there and like managed to survive in, in a few cases, even like reproduce that it's like too late. And they're like, Oh, okay. I guess this is the thing now, you know? Yeah, um, I don't mean yeah. to make, and I kind of like, and I'm making it sound a little bit haphazard, but I think there is a certain haphazard nature to early, these early colonial efforts where they're like, oh, okay, that, that seems to be sticking, I guess we'll just allow that to happen, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think that's an important overall thing that this history reveals is that colonization, a lot of it was just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. And a lot of things didn't. And that, and that yeah. doesn't mean, like you said, that doesn't mean they're all necessarily failures. It's just that for whatever reason, they didn't hang on and only certain things did. And it was very unpredictable. But is there any other sort of overall point or last point that you think this history brings out that should change how we look at early America or European colonialism? Well, one thing that I feel that I've learned from looking at these uh, Guiana colonies in particular is that we think of them, and indeed I have been talking about them as English endeavors or Dutch or French endeavors, but a lot of them were involved people from different nations. So there there were some Anglo-Dutch settlements. There was a group of French that was settling under the protection of the Dutch West India Company. And the other thing is that the crown, you know, in the case of England, especially was not always committed to these places. These places were some would sometimes sometimes they would colonize first, ask permission later. You know, a few merchants would pull together some money, send out a few ships, and then they'd come back with whatever they found and say, hey, what do you think? Pat, can we get a patent to colonize this place? And sometimes in some cases there's ambiguity about whether or not they're doing things with the sanction of the crown or not. So if things go okay, maybe James would own up to that sometimes he didn't right so you know Walter Raleigh goes on this second expedition and and there's this big question about to what extent James really wanted him to go or thought he should go and and he goes you know 
part of the reason he goes is he says he's going to find a gold mine. So this is the, again, the, the appeal of the gold mine <laughs> persists. But then they wind up getting in a skirmish with the Spanish. People are killed on both sides. And so then James, you know, executes Raleigh when he comes back, right? Or the Amazon company um, that I've written a little bit about, same thing. They, people who were a part of that claimed that they went with James permission, but he said, oh no, they did. He didn't really, they didn't really have my permission. I guess the big thing is that we shouldn't read too much of the imperial narrative back onto these places because sometimes they were really just groups of people who may or may not have had any permission from the nation that they purportedly represented and that it wasn't there. There's a question for me, whether it's like, I think, I think they contribute something to the start of these empires while not really being entirely a part of them, if that makes sense. And it's similar to like how a lot of the, the early explorers we're often not sa- not sailing for their own country, right? So, you know, Columbus sails for the Spanish or, you know, Verrazano yeah. for the French Hudson. Yeah, they were often yeah. sailing for another nation. And these colonies are kind of in a similar vein, kind of out, outside what we think of as like, you know, we think of everything as like empires and it's a little bit messier and different than that. Right, right. There wasn't some single central like imperial nerve center deciding where are we going to colonize, where are we going to conquer? It was quasi legal actors just showing up on the scene. And it's interesting, especially the way you describe James. He's this great example of a monarch who sort of kept out of active involvement in these schemes to maintain some plausible deniability. So he could then later say, I don't know, I never gave them approval. I think plausible deniability, unless there's anything else you want to add is a good final <laughs> final note, maintaining plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. So thank you so much for, for explaining all of this for us. Thank you, Melissa Morris. Thanks for having me. This has been very fun. <laughs>